This week, I am delighted to give you an update on our fundraising day. On Wednesday, the 10th of October, the Remembered team and many brilliant volunteers spent the day at various tube stations across London, where we sold pin badges and raised money. Blake joined us for an exclusive performance at Victoria, Westminster and Knightsbridge. We now have the final numbers and can confirm that we raised over £19,000. That is such a lot of money to raise in just one day. A massive thank you to everyone who helped us achieve that. If you didn't see us, or if you're not based in London, you can still donate via the donate button on our website, and our Tommy pins are also available via our shop, and we will link all of that just down below. Hello everyone and welcome to the Remembered podcast, part of our 2018 Armistice project There But Not There. For those of you new to the project, There But Not There is marking the centenary of the end of the First World War through installations of seated silhouettes and Tommy figures, and we're raising awareness of our three aims, to commemorate, to educate and to heal. Over the next couple of months we'll be speaking to other organisations and charities who are commemorating the Armistice in different ways, letting you know how to get involved. We'll also be speaking to some of the charities we're supporting this year to find out where the funds raised through sale of our Tommy figures will be going. You'll be able to find links to everything we talk about in the notes below, and you can also find out more on our website, therebutnotthere.org.uk. For more regular updates, you can follow us at Remembered2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to get in touch with Fred or I more directly, you can email us at supporters at tbnt.org.uk. Today, we're speaking with Guy de Beaujeu, who's the producer of the 2018 film adaptation of Journey's End, which released earlier this year, starring Sam Claflin, Paul Bettany, Toby Jones, Stephen Graham and Asa Butterfield. Hello, Guy. Hi. Thank you Hi. so much for coming in. We're thrilled to have you on this, uh, on the podcast. The film obviously came out earlier this year, so, but let's go back to how you boarded it, how, how it all started. Could you give us a brief outline of the work that went into getting it made? Sure. I, I um, had it suggested to me in 2013 that I might like to consider Journey's End as a film adaptation. And, and I thought it was a fantastic idea, but I was pretty sure it being considered the greatest play ever written about World War One, that it, the, the rights would be long gone. When I looked into them, actually the rights were not long gone. They were just locked in the vault of a Hollywood studio who wasn't keen to release them. And it set me off on, a, on a, my own journey to try to get the rights back into the UK uh, in time for the centenary. I, I felt very strongly that Journey's End was the perfect film to make for remembrance and mainly because it doesn't really take sides it's a play that deals with the insanity of war with the reality of war and it doesn't have a go uh, at any particular uh, nation uh, and it felt to me that it, at, a, at a time when we are um, all about reconciliation and remembrance to make a, a war film that was going to be a, a wham bam shoot 'em up man glorification of war was completely wrong. Uh, and and the longer that I have ha I have worked on Journey's End, actually, the more um, I've come to realise that films that do glorify war are so 
distasteful and so wrong, uh, it makes our decision to make Journey's End seem an even better one. You must have felt quite a lot of pressure bringing a classic like that. I mean, particularly to anyone who's you know grown up in Britain, it's such a famous play. How did that feel to have the weight of all those previous showings? And I mean, I don't know if it's ever been off stage in Britain. How did that feel? Well, there was there was pressure without a doubt, but it was it was exciting pressure actually, and I think that that what we realised was that we had to make something that absolutely chimed with the 21st century. We could take a play that was so fantastically wrought, so beautifully put together, um, but it was a play. And to take it into the big screen was going to be a challenge, not least because the play takes place in one room. Um, how are we going to make it filmic? How are we going to make it relevant to the 21st century? I mean, those were all creative uh decisions and issues that, that we that we look forward to tackling and and and, and actually I think that what Simon Reed the, the screenwriter and Saul Dib director uh, and our cast and crew managed to achieve is truly extraordinary yeah. when you consider um, that the play was set in in one room and one of the keys to it actually was that as well as the play we also discovered um, a book that Sheriff had written with Vernon Bartlett uh, which was the book of the play. So we suddenly had a backstory that not many people knew about. Um, so we were able to genuinely use more of Sheriff's writing, but actually look at other areas and expand the, uh, the film to look at the raid, to be in the trenches, uh, to go back behind the, the communications lines into the HQs and to learn a little bit more about Rally and his journey to the front and, and all of those things to make it more filmic. And most of that came out of the book. Helps you scale it up a bit, I suppose. Oh, it, it, did, it did help us, it did help us scale, it, scale it up a bit. And I think that what we also did was we, we absolutely appreciated the original play but we then modernised it. And Simon and Saul um, were very particular about uh, language. We weren't trying to make a documentary. We were trying to make something that, that modern audiences would, uh, would understand and, and felt that they could be a part of. And so we took out a lot of the more archaic term, terminology. Uh, we reduced a lot of the moments of, of levity, actually. There's, a, there's, a, there's quite a lot of slapstick in uh, the original play. Uh, particularly around Trotter, uh, and we felt that a lot of it stayed in the original script, a lot of it didn't, and then when we watched a cut, and there was a, there were a lot of jokes in it, um, it didn't feel right, oddly. And it's not to say that, that of course, that there is, there is lots of dark humour still within the film, but there were the, the, the more obviously comedy bits just didn't quite work. So we took those out, and what you are left with, actually we felt was a really honest and searingly emotional look at what it might have been to have been in the trenches at that time. Completely, yeah. And uh, on that note, I, when I saw Miles Jupp on screen, I know he's playing Hardy and I thought, this is, you know, he's really going to open up it, but you managed to keep him slightly in rain uh, when they were moving into the trench in the, in the early scenes. Yes, I, th I think, you know, Miles, Miles is terrific. Um, a role as, as Captain Hardy, a, you know, a small role, and you're right, we know him more for a sort of comedy role, but actually that wasn't 
um, what he was to play there. I, I mean, indeed, in fact, Hardy is quite a comic character within the original play. I mean, the same, I think, could be said for um, Toby Jones, who's playing Mason, the, 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 the cook. He delivers the most fantastically understated performance, and 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 actually his role grows, I think, within the the film compared to the play, perhaps, where he is more of a comic character. In the film, he almost becomes uh, another pair of eyes. Our almost through our through him, we are um, watching this upstairs downstairs experience where he is the servant who sees everything, and he sees that. Um, he sees the officers, certainly Stanup, our leading man, beginning to crack up. He knows that what what the truth is. And of course, when Stanup goes back upstairs into the trenches to, to be with the men, he's keeping it absolutely together. But but downstairs with, with Toby, Toby sees everything that's going on and sees this gradual destruction of a you know of a good man. Um, through nerves and, and alcohol and, and everything else that the, that the film delivered. It sounds obviously like you put a lot of thought into the portrayals and where you were talking about cutting back on the comedy. What about the timing of the film? Um, as you know, as we've been saying on all of these podcasts, we're in the centenary year, um, so 100 years after the end of the First World War. Did you want to deliberately release it this year? I think we, we felt very strongly that film had a... F- really crucial role to play during the whole of the 2014-2018 centenary. For me, film is a fantastic way to get to younger people. I think one of the uh, aims of the the four years needed to be uh, engaging with younger people to get them to understand the significance of of World War One. Um, you, you you might know that I made a, a previous World War One film called Private Peaceful, yep. uh, which is a Michael Morpurgo book. And again, uh, I felt very strongly that that was a good way to encourage younger people to to think about the war and to think about its consequences, and to try to give them some sense of what it might have been like to have been in the trenches, and. For Journey's End, I absolutely, I felt very strongly that uh, 2018 would be a fantastic time to release it. Uh, I thought it was just such an important part of our culture, if you like, and to to have been given the right to to bring it to the the big screen uh, at this time, such a significant time, was was a real honour, actually. I think you're completely right. I think we've been talking a lot with other um, people who are trying to engage the younger generation because that's one of the most difficult things a um, hundred years later. You also um, collaborated with Combat Stress, who are one of our beneficiaries. And we have spoken to um, Walter of Combat Stress before. Why did you feel it was important to collaborate with them? I thought it was absolutely vital that we collaborated with Combat Stress because Stanup, our leading man, is suffering from PTSD. And it was a fantastic opportunity to suddenly bring the First World War up to date with modern wars. PTSD is an issue that is more spoken of now than ever before. It acted as a bridge between the wars so when I when we had the chance to meet with Combat Stress, there was um, Simon the writer, Saul the director, and a number of the cast were there, and it 
it was an absolutely magical moment because I think up to that point, for for you know, perhaps for for all of us, we were slightly struggling with how this film would relate to modern warfare. We sat in a room with these three guys from Combat Stress who had all were all suffering from various degrees of PTSD. And they spoke, and they could have been soldiers from the First World War speaking. Suddenly, this door opened before us, and we realised that what they had experienced in war was exactly what Sheriff had written on the page. It was very similar to what Simon had adapted into the film. And they realised, the, the cast at that point, that we were making something important and serious that had really interesting things to say about war and what it does to the men and women that find themselves uh, wrapped up in it. And of course, perhaps almost more crucially, the significance of the ripples of war throughout society. It's not just about those men and women who have been to war. It's about how that experience then ripples through the rest of their families, their societies. And it felt really significant that day. It set us off on, on, our, on our path. And I was so thrilled that we had got in touch with Combat Stress, that they became our official charity for the, for the film, and that we were then able to help them raise some money as well. Did you make any changes based off of that meeting, or did you find that it was actually just backing up the kind of decisions you'd already made? Well, I, I'm I'm only the lowly producer, so um, so I I don't I wasn't particularly involved in the in the, in the scripting of the film. But what I do know is that uh, for Sam Claflin playing Stanup, he had uh, a number of one to ones with uh, with the combat stress guys, and it absolutely drove his performance. Mm-hmm. And when you see the film and you see this incredible performance from a from an actor who many people would would perhaps previously have, have as viewed as kind of Hollywood beefcake. You know, he absolutely delivers the most fantastic performance. And it is in no small part to uh, the conversations that he had with, with those guys from, from Combat Stress. As you say, Tom Claflin puts in an incredible performance. In fact, all the cast, particularly Paul Bettany, who I always adore, uh, were fantastic all being British actors, was that quite an easy ask, getting them on board? Were they all quite, as you say, they felt you know hugely inspired by meeting all these combat stress guys, but surely some of them were biting their hand off when they knew that it was going to get made anyway? Well, in fact, again, uh, returning to, to Sam, uh, he had signed up for the film as soon as he heard it was happening. Really? Great. Yeah. Sam had seen the play when he was at drama college and had fallen in love with it, and when he discovered that the film was going to happen... Uh, he was on board straight away, long before uh, lots of other people were. And once Sam was on board, uh, it enabled us to raise the profile a little bit. Suddenly we had a, a, a known actor, a very interesting, young, up-and-coming British actor, and we just began to, to draw other actors. Of course, lots of the actors knew the play um, and have seen it. Probably performed um, it as well. And probably <laughs> performed it, yeah. Um, so they, they were all certainly aware of it as a piece of theatre. And with Sam's attachment, and then and then Toby came on board, and Toby being such a well-respected member of, um, sort of British film society, if you like, um, he was terrific at uh, also then helping us to attract others. And 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 you're right. Once you've got a 
a, a project the scale of, of of Journey's End being that well known, and then you suddenly start to attract one or two actors of note, then others want to come on board. And you know, I have to say that what m- made the film uh, as 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 thrilling for me as as it has been is that you're absolutely right. We brought in six brilliant British actors absolutely at the top of their game it, I mean it becomes the film for me is like an act off <laughs> you can't you, know, you, you each different person that sees the film has a has a favorite because they all deliver an amazing performance I mean Tom, Tom Sturridge who has perhaps the smaller role as as Hibbert um, and Hibbert is essentially the coward of the piece you know, that's a really difficult role to play and I thought he absolutely nailed it and in fact Hibbert is an interesting character because in a way looking at Journey's End from a 21st sensibility. Yeah, he's the only one who's got his head screwed on right. He's the one that wants to get the hell out of there. He's the one that's going, this is horrific, we're all going to die. And he's the one that lots of people would identify with now. Um, I think there's plenty of people you can identify with yeah. as well. That's the beauty of it. You have, such, you have six wildly different characters in there. And you, so you can kind of identify with any one of them at any point. Such a rather range. Than, yeah, yes. in any sort of big shooting uh, World War II movie, uh, I wouldn't know who to attach myself to. Yeah, and, and I think that's the genius of, of Sheriff's original play. That's that's its absolute essence of it, is that, I mean, he always said that it was an easy play to write because he just wrote about his experiences. They were the men that he had seen in the trenches and and he's very self-deprecating about the brilliance of, of his characterization. And, and what Simon and Saul and the actors achieved was and you've said it already, it was absolutely to create six individual characters that we could all identify with. And there are, absolutely, there are essences of, of all of us in in each of those characters. And I think that's its genius, really. You mentioned that you've worked on other World War One films before, particularly Private Peaceful, um, which I believe actually was also a play at one point. Um do you find that World War One resonates with audiences in the same way World War Two does? There are so many World War Two films out there. Um, there doesn't seem to be as many World War One films. Do you think it's because it doesn't resonate? Why? Why do you think that is? I think it's uh, it's actually because World War One was essentially a static war, um, and it makes it quite difficult to make the sorts of films that people have made about World War Two, in which. There is action and drama, and uh, I have to say, and I'm sure we all agree, you know, a certain level of glorification of the war. There was also a much more obvious um, enemy. Um, I think the Nazis make for better baddies, for want of a sort of you know simplistic look at how filmmakers think. And so, World War One, because it is essentially uh, so vicious in terms of the numbers of of dead and yet uh, so static it does make it quite difficult to to find your way into telling a a story um, filmically I think so uh, my previous film Private Peaceful deals with the experience of two farm boys going to war and Michael Morpurgo wanted to highlight a particular uh, element of the First World War, which was that we ended up shooting our own side for for cowardice and various other um, misdemeanors, and it was his way of getting younger people to understand that in war, really, really extraordinary and horrible uh, and shocking things 
happen. And it's not just about killing the enemy or being killed by the enemy. You get to a point where you're starting to shoot your own side. Again, I think drawing on that idea that, that I think we get from Sheriff, it's just that all war is is insanity. It's just it's just bonkers. And that for me was was the attraction of of both of those films was that they shone lights on uh, World War One in in really quite different ways, but but actually drawing you to the same conclusion. So World War One, it's from what you're saying, seems to rely more on getting to know the characters, whereas I think we would all agree that World War Two films tend to rely more on like big set pieces, mm. big dramatic um, wide shots of these terrible things that happen so would you say that the character is a really important thing with world war one yeah I, I, absolutely i, I think uh, if you look at if you look at warhorse yeah. <laughs> you know, another big budget m- movie um about world war one you're actually looking at the character of the horse yeah. you know it's the horse that kind of drives that story um of course there's, there's joey as well but i mean in, in, in the end that that's about that with with the films that i've made it's absolutely been about about the characters. I think if you look at bigger World War World War Two films, Saving Private Ryan, some, a film like that you know, plainly was doing two things. It was trying to say these men are human beings. It was trying to humanise um, Tom Hanks. Uh, he's a school teacher. You never discover that till the very end. Um, and then when they come back at the end, you know, it's trying to say that this is again the, the ripples through society. But but. You, you inevitably get to a point where people are watching these films for the action sequences quite often. And that's, you're just not going to really get that in World War One particularly. Well, I think looking at Johnny's End through that lens, actually, it, the, the main overriding question I, I felt, which was just, who is the enemy really here? Certainly not the Germans, because the only time you see a German is a scared kid getting dragged back from a trench, mm. doesn't know what's going on. You, you actually feel pity for the poor guy. And then... The only other time you sort of see the effects of the enemy on the British troops is getting bombed to bits at the end. And they're only there because the high command, British high command, have said, you're staying there with no backup. Mm. So, you know, it's, there's, it's so less clear as to who you're supposed to be gunning for them to beat. It's just a sort of, you purely feel a bit of pity and, and actually slight resentment of them being there. Yes, absolutely. And I think, again, that's that's the clever bit of, of the play was that, that Sheriff didn't need to show the, the Germans. Um, they are the unseen uh, enemy. They are, it's, it's almost like a, a, a monster movie in a funny sort of way that, that, that the enemy yeah, is out there yeah. and we're all waiting for the enemy to attack. And it was, it was very much about that psychological effect of the waiting. In fact, he, uh, in an early draft, he, called it waiting did he as a, yeah. um, and, and then eventually chose journey's end as the as the name of it and i think that's what's really fascinating is that we've all had some experience of a nervous tension in us waiting for something it's I something that quite we, a few when you were making the film yeah well i see yeah that's that's, that's the the producer's lot of being i'm permanently nervous but but you you we can all relate to that. What we can't relate to is that sensation of going over the top and, and uh, going on an attack. So I think it's really clever of Sheriff to, to, to drill down into that nervous tension of waiting because it's something that we can identify with. Changing the subject slightly, but purely from 
a geeky historical point of interest for me. I just thought the trench sets were just incredible. Please tell me how you managed to make them look so authentic because I get so wound up when I see any sort of shorts or TV references to trench warfare and you see these things which so clearly were not at all representative of what those guys were staying in. How did you make it so... Well, I'm probably wrong, but it felt hugely authentic. Well, I, I, I would say that they were as authentic as they possibly could be. They were trenches that had been built outside Ipswich to a 1916 uh, British handbook, um, British specification, by uh, Taff Gillingham and his team at Khaki Devil. Uh, it's the place where I went to shoot uh, Private Peaceful as well. So I was aware of them. Taff has an incredible resource in terms of props and knowledge and uh, extras. Um, and so it was, it was a natural home for us. The weather was terrible. We were allowed to beat the trenches up a little bit. Uh, we had the most fantastic production design team led by Christian Milstead, who recreated the most amazingly realistic trenches. And Taft didn't perhaps realise when he built the trenches that as filmmakers, we like everything a little bigger. Yeah. We've got a lot of kit to fit in. So if you were making a trench specifically to film in, you wouldn't have made them the way that Taft made them, which was an absolute replica of, of a line of trenches. But that then made it incredibly real. So we had to fight to get all our kit in there, but we were working in a space that was exactly the right size, the correct size, uh, for those trenches on the Western Front. It meant that because they're outside, it was raining, it got wet, everyone got cold and muddy, and it added an incredible sense of realism that we would never have got had we been in a studio. So that was the, the, the trench side of things. And I have to say that the actors just embraced the horribleness of it. Uh, they were slithering around in the mud and they were getting really cold. But the reality was, it's small beer compared to what those men would actually have gone through. So they took it and decided to make it absolutely as, as authentic and as, as good as they could do. And we then moved uh, to a studio in Wales to film the dugout scenes. And again, the dugout was made from a 1916 uh, specification as well. Uh, these dugouts were often flat packed in the UK and then shipped out to the Western Front. So there's very specific ways that they were supposed to be built. And again, Christian's team created something that felt so realistic. You, you, you had to walk up onto some scaffolding and then walk down the steps to give you that sense that you were coming into the dugout. Even though I knew it was a studio and it was 2018 and I was the producer of this film, I walked into that dugout and it felt so real mud on the floors, the walls felt like they were groaning, it felt like the mud was, was about to pour through the So claustrophobic. The it was incredibly claustrophobic. Paul Bettany is six foot three. Um, I think the, we didn't increase the height of the, uh, the space for him. He's always a little bit stooped. And the flats, the sides would go on, they would, get, they would all walk in, the, 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 the doors would shut, and they would just be in there. Um, Saul and the actors... Uh, and, and minimal crew, hardly any lighting, and they just ran those scenes almost you know, in, in, um, in completion 
uh, so that we could just get this real sense of honesty and, and, and realism. And I think it, it worked incredibly well. That's so interesting to hear because I always wonder when I watch things like this whether you scale it up for effect or whether you have to scale it back so that you don't disturb your audience too much. So it's quite interesting to hear that you actually went for complete authenticity. That's that's fantastic. So it means that when people watch this film, they're going to have an accurate idea of, of what it was actually like to be there. Yes, they are. And I think that one of the things perhaps we haven't mentioned that for me... I am the son of uh, an army officer. I grew up surrounded by the army. And one of the things that I felt was terribly important to get across, amongst all of the authenticity of the sets and the props and everything that we were trying to do, one of the most crucial things was that people understood that soldiers are human beings, Mm. that they are not just a uniform. They have loved ones and families and relations and society that's all behind them. And often people see news reports or or photos of soldiers who have been killed in various conflicts around the world and they just see a uniform and go, oh, it's just a soldier. It's an extraordinary thing. And of course, growing up around soldiers, I would see them in their uniform and then later on I would see them in their civilian clothes and almost go, oh yeah, of course, they're humans. And that's, that's stayed with me. And I think one of the terrible things is that we struggle to understand the enormity of World War I um, and the, the, the sheer numbers of, it's not soldiers who died, you know, it's human beings that died. And I think if, if, if the film can encourage younger people to think more in those terms, then it would have done a good thing. You're clearly incredibly passionate about this film and I know that at the moment you are getting some screenings going on um, in conjunction with the There But Not There installation. Could you just let our listeners know more about that, how they can get involved and how they can spread the word? Sure, sure absolutely. Yeah, and I'm really, really excited about it actually. It's, it's an initiative that we're running to enable churches and places of worship to screen Journey's End in their church for free as long as they hold a collection for combat stress. The idea being that you can watch this film surrounded by memorials to the fallen of all wars, and I think it will be an extraordinarily emotional experience. What we ask is that people actually do screen it within the body of the church. I'm afraid that for various boring uh, legal and distribution reasons, we cannot let people screen the film under this initiative in their local village hall or in their church hall. It has to physically be in the church. All they have to do is apply online on the Church of England website and buy a DVD from any known supplier and then let us know. We will provide them with a licence and they can screen the film for free in the run-up to Remembrance Sunday for their congregation. It's a really lovely idea, and I think it'll look incredibly powerful. Knowing our silhouette installations as I do, I think it'll work so well. You know, there's so much scope to have a play with the lighting on some of the silhouettes and things like that. Are you offering anything further in terms of helping people set these things up, or do you think that they can just sort of get the DVD, stick it on, and, and get their friends around? I think the, the yeah. I mean, what we have said is that because this is becoming quite a big 
uh, quite a big deal. We've already got 100 churches signed up. Fantastic. What we've said Fantastic. is that um, congregations, I am sure between them, can rustle up projectors and screens and players. So we cannot actually supply um, any of those things. We can't do any of the hardware for them. Uh, but we're sure that if, um, if the churches are interested, where there's a will, there's a way. Well, it sounds fantastic and good luck with it. And a note to all our listeners, if you haven't seen the film, this is the perfect setting to watch it in. It's incredibly moving and, and sad, actually, but it's, it's, it's well worth a watch. Guy, thank you so much for coming in and, and, well, telling us about the film. We've probably gone way over there, but just got a bit excited. And do sign up, as, everyone, as I said, everyone should sign up to that and, and get your church involved. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, next week, we'll be speaking with John Heinsohn, He's a Los Angeles-based filmmaker who spent the last three years investigating his grandfather's early work as a German combat photographer in the First World War. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, you can visit our website to sign up for our monthly newsletter and follow us at Remembered2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We will put links to everything Guy has mentioned um, in the show notes as well. So if you do want to get involved, have a look there. And do leave us a review. Um, we rely on you to share the podcast with your friends and followers to make sure that it gets out there to everyone who wants to hear it. And we'll see you next week. This week, we have some very special stories to share with you. Blake supported us on our fundraising day by singing at three different stations and were also kind enough to share some of their own personal World War I history. Ollie, in particular, knows a lot about his relatives who fought in the war, and here are some of their stories. My father's mother's father was Percy Coriat. He had a long military career which began at the age of 14 when he ran away from school and lied about his age to sign up. He had his eyes shot out in the war and wore a patch for the rest of his life. There is a family story of him having to haul one of his guns through the mud of Flanders and using his belt to reattach the horse's harness, which had snapped. A general, passing up the column on his horse, reprimanded him for holding on to his waistband instead of saluting, whereupon he did so and his trousers fell off. He rose to the rank of colonel and became a district commissioner of the Sudan. My father's father's father was Michael Baines. He was also a young officer in the Great War. Early in the conflict, he survived a cavalry charge against machine guns which decimated his troop. He came away from the battle with bullet holes in his boots and saddle. The experience clearly scarred him terribly. I knew him when I was a young boy, but have learned since of the shell shock that affected him for life. Two of my great uncles died in the war, one at the Somme and one at the Battle of Festubert, which was the first night attack of the war. A hundred years later, my father and I visited the site of the Battle of Festubert. We crossed some Belgian fields at 3am, the time he was killed, and we tried to avoid falling up to our armpits in muddy, impassable six-foot ditches. The thought of doing it while being shot at with a heavy machine gun is still a sobering one. He was only 22 years old. <laughs>